This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Redbox Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Coming up on today's episode, don't you love it when two news stories collide? Prince Charles taking over more and more from the Queen and the government's uh, plan to export asylum seekers to Rwanda, uh, condemned as appalling by Prince Charles. All of those stories come together uh, this week when Prince Charles heads to Rwanda uh, to lead the head, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting, or Chogham. Uh, so we're going to look ahead to what all of that might mean and ask what's the point of the Commonwealth in the 21st century. So that's our big thing coming up in just a moment. First as ever, we kick off with our columnist panel and on a Monday, it's Libby Rachie. The Columnists with Libby Rachie, Libby Purvis and Rachel Sylvester on Times Radio. Yes, it's that time of the show. We always speak to two of our favourite columnists. Morning, Libby Purvis. Good morning. And morning, Rachel Sylvester. Morning. Uh, nice to have you both with us. Uh, well, let's start by talking about industrial action and uh, strikes. Uh, and actually, literally, in the last few minutes, we've had confirmation of more uh, strike action. The criminal bar, barristers have voted uh, in favour of uh, strike action. Uh, Without immediate action to halt the exodus of criminal barristers from our ranks, the record backlog of this criminal courts will continue to inflict misery upon victims. Defenders alike and the public will be betrayed, they've said. Uh, They voted in favour of uh, strike action. And uh, so they'll join, you know, train drivers, bus drivers uh, in uh, in staging walkouts. And obviously, uh, we've heard in the last half an hour, teachers also planning to ballot if, if they don't get more than 11% in pay rises. Uh, lots of papers saying it's all back to the 1970s, a cultural reference which only people in their 60s will necessarily be able to enjoy. Um, it, how, how big a problem is this, do you think? Is the government getting it right? It's absolutely huge. And what's more, it goes right back beyond that to the, it's for historians, to the general strikes in, in the 30s. I, I think what is interesting in a gloomy way is that there is just this massive sense of discontent. It's not just the individual issues of all these bodies, uh, uh, railwaymen, um, teachers, barristers, doctors, whatever. Uh, It's a sort of sense that that nobody is doing anything, that nobody cares, 
that we have an elite which orders itself in gold wallpaper paid for by other people uh, and that has parties and makes rules and then ignores them and uh, with suitcases full of booze, all that stuff. It really is relevant to the way people in general are feeling now. There is no sense around of let us all pull together, you know, let us all defeat this, you know, as there was for a while in the COVID period. I think government has managed to create an atmosphere of absolute dislike and resentment. And that is one of the things which is driving people to strike who probably would not have done if they had another feeling about our leaders. You know, it is a disaster. Well, one of the things that everyone keeps on saying, and this is weird, the politics, the dynamics of this are weird because the Labour Party doesn't want to be putting itself at odds with the unions, but also doesn't want to appear to be supporting the strikes, which means, uh, let's just take a listen to this. There's only one phrase that everyone is using. Whilst ever he's not at the table. But that's why the government has got to get round the table. Please just get round the table. Or what uh, if we, uh, if you strike, you risk other businesses. And wouldn't their time be better spent in doing their job and trying to get round the table to resolve this? And they need to be getting people round the table and resolving these disputes instead of fanning the flames of the fire. Get back around the table, Rachel Sylvester. Uh, <laughs> is, do you think the government's inclined to do that? It feels like the government is just up for a fight. Yeah, and they want to politicise this and make this into a Labour backs the strikers and the unions thing. But in the end, the, the government's going to be the people who get this in the neck when the voters have their lives disrupted. And also bear in mind that all these public sector workers who haven't seen pay rises in line with inflation are also voters. So I think about the teachers who are the people I've been really looking at over the last year with the Education Commission. They will have seen a real terms cut of cut of 14% in their pay um, between 2010 and I think it's 2023. So it's not that... Um, and also, as there's this just sense of you know, the workload's going up, they're not valued, they're not respected. Um, so it's a general thing, as Libby says, about the sense of not feeling that the government's on their side. And I think in the end, it'll be the government that gets punished for that. And this is all, of course, you know, part of the cost of living crisis that the Treasury's um, spending limits that they gave to the department were based on inflation being at under 4%. And it's more than double that. So the kind of clash between the government's plans and the government's kind of spending and the reality of inflation making life increasingly difficult for people is going to just get harder and harder, I think. It seems like, um, Libby, there's a slight attempt to sort of rerun the, the early coalition days, the sort of David Cameron, George Osborne politics of you can't be too tough on welfare and you can just stoke an argument with the... Uh, with the unions and and paint Ed Miliband is red Ed and all of that and and the public will side with you. I just wonder whether just the, the public mood maybe they're just they are just judging the public mood wrongly this time around. That actually maybe the fact that everyone is really um, feeling the impact of rising inflation, but also that you know the slight shift in public mood towards public sector workers during the pandemic and whether it was mm. nurses or teachers, but binmen or whatever as well. They just it, it's they're tr they're trying to rerun a, a, a an argument which but the, the times have changed. 
That, I think I think that's right. And the interesting thing is that they actually they would have an opportunity if they were not so maladroit and tactless and useless, um, and and visibly incompetent. Uh, they would have an opportunity because after COVID, you know, the whole country said, "Yes, there's a big thing. We all had to fight together." We have Putin. We have the Ukraine situation. You know, Europe sort of let us all pull together. Let us, you know, they they could have they could have created that feeling. Instead, they have created a feeling of idle hedonism and also of not getting to any table, just sort of lounging back on a sofa, you know, possibly with a suitcase full of booze, you know, gazing at their gold wallpaper. It is, it, the atmosphere is entirely wrong. They're not reading the room at all. And uh, I wish Keir Starmer was reading the room a bit better. He's sort of trying to, but uh, he, he doesn't convince enough. You know, this could be a fantastic opportunity for Keir Starmer, and, and he's it's not quite taking it. Yeah, just looking at some of the polling, YouGov, uh, 32% of people think unions play a positive role in Britain today, against 26% say a negative role. Uh, but, 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 what's the, the latest on this? The, uh, do unions reflect ordinary working people in Britain today? Uh, 29% say fairly well, 5% say very well. What's that? Was 34% say that they do. So there does seem to be a, a decent chunk of the public who side with the unions on this. And so it's a, quite a dangerous game for the government to play. And I suppose... Um, if if people do, you know, they can't get to work or they, you know, their lives get disrupted, then they might think. I suppose the other thing as well is the old money tree, Rachel, isn't it? That the there is no magic money tree. There's a, sorry, there's no money left. That was the public seemed to to buy into that conservative argument after 2010, whereas uh, Rishi Sunak's magic money tree um, gets a shaking, you know, every couple of months. There's no the well, argument. Exactly, there's no money. Yeah. It's much harder to make. Yeah, exactly. So they've spent billions and billions on COVID and on, um, you know, various HS2, various things since since that, you know, there's no money left. So there is money left when it's needed. And I think the problem is that the this inflation thing that the government's not doing enough to get under control is just going to erode um, the the money in people's pockets. Whereas meanwhile, the government seems to be unwilling to spend to help them we'll see uh we'll see how that we've, got. we've had so many messages on this uh i'd support teachers uh striking before the train unions they're totally undervalued overworked they're essential for the future of the economy of this country says mary uh then clinton says if uh, unions understood inflation it would help higher wages will create higher inflation every time there's a strike it's the same three culprits railway workers nhs and teachers if you want hyperinflation keep poking the bear grow up uh, so there's another one. Then Kevin says, my sister was a teaching assistant at a large school in Birmingham. At 61, she's just resigned to go and work in the local Tesco's. The pay is better and the work much less stressful. I think that um, I think that covers all 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 positions. So that's very good. Uh, Libby, let's talk about gymnastics. Uh, you've written uh -huh. your column about uh, gymnastics today and and the fact that actually a, a sport which has brought um, sort of joy and pleasure to so many people over the years. And it's but it's going through a, a pretty dark period right now. Yes, I think the, the the White Report, you know, the the report on on British gymnastics is absolutely devastating, and it needed, you know, it needed repeating, it needed pointing up. There are several things involved. There's the dodginess of the girls' sport itself, the fact that the acrobatization and the emphasis on pre-pubertal, very, very young bodies and very, very young girls uh, who've long, we knew, been abused and overtrained and really extraordinarily badly treated in um, Iron Curtain countries like, uh, you know, Olga Korbut, um, Nadia Komaneci, Russia, Romania. Uh, we always probably thought, oh, well, it's much nicer here. 
And then suddenly you get these extraordinary details in the White Report of the, the training, even at community level in gyms, you know, the abuses, the abuses of both the girls and that their parents being deceived and, and groomed and lied to over hideous, hideous treatment. You know, that this has been going on here, as, as one gymnast said, you know, I was basically in a Soviet training camp in the home counties. Um, so I just thought this, this all needed pointing up again. And, and the detail really needs looking at. I read every word of the White Report, and it's shocking. And it also points up the fact that governments just pour money into this elite sport in the hope of medals every four years, you know, for, for their own glory and the country's glory, while completely ignoring important PE and school sport and um, selling off playing fields, are still selling off playing fields, and the normal health of the normal child absolutely ignored. And these elites sort of uh, buttered up and the abuses ignored by government. No, it's absolutely shocking. It's, it's, worth, it's worth reading through the White Report. Eventually, uh, unfortunately, it's just sort of another, another part of society which has been exposed to being you know, pretty grim. Yeah, really grim. I thought Libby put it very well. And she's absolutely right about the importance of sport in schools and how it should be something for everyone, not just this kind of top tier elite. You know, there was one school I went to with the Education Commission where every child is encouraged to be in a sports team, even if they're absolutely useless on the grounds that it's good you know, to, to try and even if you're even if you don't win, it's just good to take part and that that's seen as a good thing in its own right. But there's a I mean, it's obviously not the same level of abuse, but there's a similar thing that goes on with some of these football academies, I think, yeah. where you've got I mean, my son was in one of them for a bit. Um, and he said it's a bit like I know it's like the Hunger Games. I know I'm going to get killed at some point. I just don't know when. The pressure that these children put themselves under, actually, to because they desperately want to live that dream of becoming the Olympian or the you know Premier League footballer. Um, so it's you, you know children get caught up in it, um, and the adults around them need to do more to protect them. And and also I think for some of the parents, I I saw it with the football on the touchline this was their kind of golden ticket it was the one way out of quite tough backgrounds at some in some ways um and there's a sort of desperation that that creates uh which is which is really sad but obviously in the gymnastic situation it, it spiraled to a whole other appalling level Libby Burbs and Rachel Vetter, and of course you can read them in the Times every week. Just get yourself a subscription. Uh, just go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Coming up, what's the point of chocolate? Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. 
That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time for this. The Big Thing on Times Radio. Yeah, sometimes two big news stories collide. One of the big stories over the last few weeks has been the big royal story of how Prince Charles is taking over more and more from the Queen. And we saw that during the Jubilee celebrations. Well, that's now colliding with the big political story of the government's attempts to send asylum seekers to Rwanda. Over the next week, Prince Charles is going to host Commonwealth leaders in Rwanda. Just days after the Times revealed, he'd called the asylum policy appalling. So today we're going to ask experts how it will all pan out and what's the point of the Commonwealth in the 21st century ahead of that meeting. Chogham, you're going to hear a lot about Chogham over the next few days, the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting. Well, let's wind back first of all. 75 years ago, the young Princess Elizabeth made a speech on her 21st birthday addressing the whole of the Commonwealth. On my 21st birthday... I welcome the opportunity to speak to all the peoples of the British Commonwealth and Empire, wherever they live, whatever race they come from, and whatever language they speak. I declare before you all that my whole life, whether it be long or short, shall be devoted to your service and the service of our great imperial family to which we all belong. But I shall not have the strength to carry out this resolution alone unless you join in it with me, as I now invite you to do. I know that your support will be unfailingly given. God help me to make good my vow, and God bless all of you who are willing to share in it. That's the Queen speaking 75 years ago. Well, Commonwealth leaders have been meeting at, in various forms since 1887, when, of course, it was then under British imperial rule. It have all evolved into the Commonwealth in the wake of the First World War and was cemented after the Second as the decolonisation process began. Winston Churchill hosted the first meeting of Prime Ministers of Commonwealth countries in 1944. This is the Queen explaining the history, opening the most recent Chogham in London in 2018. Here at Buckingham Palace in 1949, my father met the heads of government when they ratified the London Declaration, which created the Commonwealth as we know it today, then comprising just eight nations. Who then, or in 1952, when I became head of the Commonwealth, would have guessed that a gathering of its member states would one day number 53, or that it would comprise 2.4 billion people. Well, there are now 54 countries in uh, the Commonwealth. Over time, it's evolved. It became the Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting held every two years since 1971. The Queen attended her first Chocum 
two years later in Ottawa in Canada. As this news report from the Times shows, even back then the Commonwealth was thought to be on slightly shaky ground. The Queen arrived three hours ago and shook hands with the Governor-General and with Mr Trudeau, the Canadian Prime Minister, and his wife Margaret. The Queen's here to remind the 32 Commonwealth leaders that she's still head of the Commonwealth and that whatever anyone else thinks of the Commonwealth, she believes it's very much alive and worthwhile. It was a hot, sultry day and the Queen was wearing a gay, summery dress. That was back in 1973 in Canada. And yes, the Queen has been around so long, she's on her second President Trudeau of Canada. Well, Chogham moves between member states. The Queen stopped tra travelling to attend them in 2011. Prince Charles ch stepped in in 2018, in 2013. But it wasn't until 2018 it was confirmed that Charles would then formally inherit the title of the Head of Commonwealth. It remains a great pleasure and honour to serve you as Head of the Commonwealth and to observe with pride and satisfaction that this is a flourishing network. It is my sincere wish that the Commonwealth will continue to offer stability and continuity for future generations and will decide that one day the Prince of Wales should carry on the important work started by my father in 1949. That's the Queen uh, making clear her hope that Prince Charles will take over. That's therefore a big moment for him as he looks to strengthen the diplomatic ties within the Commonwealth at a, at a tricky time. He's also becoming the first member of the royal family to travel ever to Rwanda, uh, which is hosting Chogham this week. Well, I caught up with the Times royal watcher, Valentine Lowe, who's attended many Chogham's over the years. And I started by asking him how significant this one will be. This is quite a significant Chogham because it's the first one that Charles has done since he became the head designate of the Commonwealth. We always knew that when the Queen died, he was probably going to take over, but... It was only formalised in London in 2018, and this is the first one since then, so this is quite a moment for Charles. Uh, it's also significant because we've had the story in the Times about his views about the deal that they've cut with Rwanda. Now, this is a deal that the president of Rwanda, Paul Kagame, has cooked up with uh, the British government, and... Paul Kagame is going to be Charles's host, so that might lead to some sticky moments. It does feel like several stories from the last few weeks have all sort of congregated in this one thing. You've got the sort of the the, the royal aspect and the Prince Charles and post jubilee and yeah. the handing on to the next generation. Then you've got Boris Johnson doing his deal uh, with Rwanda to try and take uh, migrants, and then they all collide at this thing. And um, how? likely is it that we get sort of explosive politics? I mean, or, or is everyone on best behaviour at least? You've covered a lot of Choggums. Is everyone on best behaviour or could we could we see some frissons? Uh, I think we could definitely see some frissons. I mean, people will come up with an incredibly boring communique at the end of it, uh, but what goes on behind the scenes will be more interesting. Uh, and we all know that in previous years, Choggums have had the capacity to generate an awful lot of sort of behind-the-scenes conflict. Um, we can remember that in the 1980s, when Britain was uh, refusing to uh, join the rest of the Commonwealth in sanctions against South Africa, uh, Britain under Margaret Thatcher became incredibly isolated. And it did lead to one of my favourite uh, Commonwealth uh, moments. Uh, I wasn't there, but it's, this is well recorded in the history books, that the Queen was talking to President Kaunda of Zambia, who she got on extremely well with. And she said at one point to him, uh, Mr President, you and I should be very careful. British Prime Minister is watching us. And he looked over and there was Thatcher casting a beady <laughs> eye at the pair of them. 
And how <laughs> it's significant as well because um, it's the first visit to Rwanda by a member of the British royal family. Is that right? That's absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. it was amazing that no no member of the royal family, officially at least, has ever been there. So you know, Charles is very excited about this. He's going to see all sorts of environmental things, and and Camilla's going to do some literacy literacy projects with the uh, president's wife so um, they're, they're absolutely up for it and um, they're very keen and that's why Charles was so disappointed when the Times revealed about his views about the Rwanda policy because it sort of faintly sort of cast a shadow at the very least over the over the visit. And you had a, a brilliant story about the role of a former footballer in how all of this has come about that, that, that this is happening in Rwanda. Yeah so this this fo- footballer Charles met him Dumfries House earlier this year uh, and this was a, an event marking the anniversary of the Rwanda genocide and Charles was already you know slated to go to Rwanda but you know they, they hadn't worked out the final program and he was talking to this chap about um, exactly uh, where you should go and he said you know well you should you should get out of Kigali and you should go to this uh, memorial to victims of the genocide at a church, not, not not far out of the capital, where in an appalling incident, you know, thousands were massacred in this church and tens of thousands are buried outside it. Uh, but yet now, they, Hutus and Tutsis live together. And it's an example of, you know, how they're striving to overcome the, the legacy of the appalling genocide of 1994. It's an extraordinary story. It's a guy called Eric Eugene Marangua. It was a Tutsi who was goalkeeper for the national team. He avoided being murdered by Hutu soldiers only when one of them recognised him in a team photograph. It's an incredible story. Yeah, incredible absolutely story. amazing. And then he, and then he was protected uh, by his team, his teammates, his Hutu t- teammates, who you know uh, kept him safe for a while until he was able to. I think it was uh, coming back from a uh, an international match. They stopped over in Paris, and he made his escape there and uh, made it to Britain, where he he now lives. And so finally then, the significance of this this Commonwealth uh, meeting, the first with Charles there, as you said, is the sort of designate. And it's the first time of the Commonwealth becoming a sort of standalone organisation distinct from just being directly connected to the Queen. And some people say, what is the the point of the the Commonwealth? What's the future of the Commonwealth beyond a sort of a project of the Queen? Do you think it has a long-term future? Yeah, I I think uh, the Commonwealth faces a problem. It was a big problem about who to have his head because it just means that, you know, it has this overall atmosphere of being a legacy of empire, which, you know, you don't want it. And there are countries in the Commonwealth that were not members of the British Empire. It's not just that. But that's that's the, that's the vibe of it. And I, th- I think they face a big problem. And, and there are countries like India, which are not really fully committed to the Commonwealth project. I mean, I think there are big questions about its future. A lot of people ask, what does it really do? And it's quite difficult to come up with an answer sometimes. Valentine Lowe, though, the Times is royal watcher. We're taking a look at the Commonwealth. The Chogham Commonwealth Heads of Government meeting uh, starts in Rwanda this week. Prince Charles will be there as the sort of head of uh, Commonwealth designate. Uh, The Queen hasn't travelled there for some time. What's it like to organise one of these things? Lord MacDonald, Simon MacDonald. Former head of the Foreign Office joins me in the studio. Morning, Simon. Morning, Matt. Uh, Nice to have you with us. We've got uh, Sue Onslow, Director of the Institute for Commonwealth Studies on the line. Morning, Sue. Good morning to you. Well, I'll speak to you in just a moment, Sue, about the, the, the point of all of this. Simon, first of all, just explain the logistics. How, what about, was it now, 54 countries in, uh, in the Commonwealth? 
presumably all the heads of uh, government come and they all think they're the most important person. How do you how do you make sure that everyone feels equally special? That's exactly right. Uh, 54 and continuing to expand. Uh, and helpfully, in protocol terms, they are all equivalent. So they are all treated in the same dignified way. Uh, but when there are so many, that involves a huge amount of accommodation and transport and security, uh, which is what happened in London in April 2018. At the time, the biggest collection of world leaders in Britain. Exactly. Uh, everybody knew it was the last time that the Queen herself would be in the chair. And so more than 40 of the heads of state and government came to London for that meeting. Because the appeal of meeting the Queen, given her long reign, is, is, is so great, does, does Prince Charles have the same appeal, do you think? Well, the Queen was uh, associated with the Commonwealth from the beginning of the Commonwealth. Yeah. So, yes, that is unique and irreplaceable. But one of the uh, outcomes of 2018 was the agreement by everybody that Prince Charles will, in due course, be the next head of the Commonwealth. So um, he has the job. He's got the job. He's got the job. And what, what, what's the point of it? What's the Because the, the countries, you've got huge countries and tiny countries, you've got rich countries and poor countries in every sort of part of the world. What, what, what is the point of bringing all these people together? But in a way, that is the point. It is such a varied group, but they have some things very important in common. Uh, the link with the United Kingdom, uh, generally uh, through the empire, the link of the English language and the common law. Uh, media is uh, shared. And so, uh, and the agenda these days is shared. It's really the, the soft power end. Uh, they won't be discussing Ukraine so much as the environment and human rights. Uh, let's bring in uh, Sue there from the Institute for Commonwealth Studies. F from your point of view, what, what is the, what state is the Commonwealth in right now? And what is the point of this big, big gathering taking place in, in Kigali? Thank you very much. I would agree with Valentine Lowe that the Commonwealth is at a crossroads at the moment. That Prince Charles, I also want to underline, is the ceremonial head. He's not the political head of the Commonwealth. That uh, position is, of course, also being contested in Kigali. Simon underlined that um, the Commonwealth has been uh, indelibly associated with the Queen since 1952 when she came to the throne. But I think going forward, the Commonwealth has got a visibility problem, it's got a communications problem, and it's also got an identity problem. In terms of its visibility, this is an age of single issue politics and single issue organizations. The Commonwealth did have that before in history with uh, in the Cold War as a non-aligned grouping and also which included, of course, Cold War groups within it, but it was a, uh, very much had a non-aligned grouping. It also, of course, played a major role in the global anti-apartheid struggle. The Commonwealth has um, offered leadership on climate change. It has offered leadership on democracy and human rights within its members, but it certainly faces a problem of what is its legitimacy and purpose going forward. So this really does confront the organisation right now and why leadership is a critical issue. And, and so where should that leadership be coming from? Is it from Prince Charles? Is it from Baroness Scotland, currently the, the, the head of the Commonwealth? Or should it be from Boris Johnson as the, as the Prime Minister from the country around which the Commonwealth sort of rotates? Is, is, Simon, yeah. It's very important that uh, Boris Johnson does not behave as though he is the, the, the biggest person in the room because the whole point of the Commonwealth is equality amongst the member states. And that equality has allowed a better conversation 
as Sue has been saying, about a very wide range of issues. So this variety is a challenge, but also is an explanation for why these people get together. Because in an informal uh, atmosphere, um, once every couple of years, people can have face-to-face conversations about the widest possible range of subjects, all in the same language and with a, a lot of mindset in common. You know, democracy and human rights, uh, sustainability are things that have run through the Commonwealth from the beginning, and it's, that's the basis on which everybody's talking. Has it been overtaken a bit by other things, though? We had, I mean, in fact, it was literally overtaken as the biggest event of world leaders in the UK because we had COP26, which took place here. You know, very much focused on climate change with far more people. Uh, you know, the, the uh, NATO's gone up the agenda in, in recent uh, months because of the situation in Ukraine when it comes to defence. Is the fact that it can deal with anything actually the risk it ends up dealing with nothing? No one international organisation these days can deal with everything, not even the United Nations. The United Nations has now so many sub-organisations within it. Um, Every country belongs to multiple groupings, and this is a useful uh, element. Uh, It's not exclusive, uh, it's not anybody's most important international grouping, but it's useful and it continues to grow. So there is interest from uh, African countries in particular, Francophonie, in joining the Commonwealth, increasing their options. Uh, So just finally... Sorry, go on, Sue. This question about it continuing to grow, the Commonwealth has got clear criteria for membership, but it also needs needs to exercise due diligence to make sure that new members uh, comply with those criteria and the Harari principles, because otherwise it risks undermining its credibility and its legitimacy going forward. Sue, it's good. To, thanks so much for joining us. Sue Onslow there, Director of the Institute for Commonwealth uh, Studies. Now, one of the th- issues, of course, is that this year it's taking place in Rwanda, particularly a place of interest, following the government's deal with President Kagame to uh, send asylum seekers there. Well, yesterday, speaking to Times Radio, President Kagame's former Chief of Staff, uh, uh, Theogene Rudasingwa, who now opposes the Rwandan government, criticised the British government for arguing Rwanda as a safe and free society. Uh, despite the standard kind of storyline that we hear many, many times from Rwanda and those who support it, especially those in the British government who are the architects of this policy of shipping the asylum seekers to, to Rwanda, uh, the true story is that this is a, an autocratic authoritarian state where the ordinary citizens don't have rights, where many people languish in jail and suffer from extrajudicial killings where there are so many people who cannot participate in, in uh, the political process or have a free press or have civil society organizations. And indeed, we have often said that Rwanda is like one giant prison with multiple prisons inside. And so taking asylum seekers there is literally condemning them to detention. Rwanda is one giant prison, he was saying there. Simon, um, I suppose this is the tension, isn't there, that if you want countries to change... You have to bring them in. But then if you do that, it looks like you're in some way condoning some of what goes on there. I mean, when you join any club, you uh, adopt the rules of that club and you need to be held to the rules of the club, as Sue has just said. Mm. So if Gabon comes in, Gabon will be held to the standard of the Harari principles. Uh, the organisation won't flex. The new member must flex. Um, the problems with the, the Rwanda asylum policy are not principally to do with Rwanda, in my view. Uh, it's that the United Kingdom is not fulfilling its obligations uh, to asylum seekers. 
Do you think when Boris Johnson goes to Rwanda and tries to make the case to other countries to improve human rights, as we, you know, as we were just discussing, is one of the the, the the things that Commonwealth can do? Is that job made harder by the way that the government is behaving towards asylum seekers? Do you think it will be an element for sure? But part of the deal uh, with Rwanda is that uh, asylum seekers or uh, people claiming asylum will be treated in a certain way, with a certain dignity, and that will be monitored and Rwanda will be kept, I assume, up to that standard. Uh, let's bring in Henry Zeffman. He's the Times Associate Political Editor. He'll be flying to Rwanda with the Prime Minister later this week. Henry, this is, this is all, all, the, all the news coming together in one. How, um, uh, how do you think it's going to play out politically? What does Boris Johnson want to get from this meeting this week? Yeah, it does rather feel like the sort of um, hackneyed end to a, to a TV series where all the plot <laughs> strands fuse uh, in, a, in a slightly um, over, overdone, over-obvious way. Um, look, I think, I, think, I think there is going to be an uncomfortable sort of dual element to Boris Johnson's presence there or comfortable as he would have it because um, I think what he wants to get out of it is you know Britain's continuing place in the Commonwealth Britain's continuing global leadership in an age of Brexit facing outwards global Britain etc 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 you can insert your own buzzwords there but also he is going to be in Rwanda he's going to be in Rwanda uh, shortly after that plane with uh, asylum seekers did not take off um, and uh, he's also going to be there with Prince Charles, who, uh, as our colleague Matt Dathan reported, thinks the Rwanda um, refugee policy is is appalling. So um, I think I think whatever Boris Johnson does want to achieve from the summit is going to be inevitably eclipsed, at least to some degree, by questions about his bilateral relationship with Rwanda. And actually, there's a great piece in the Times today. I don't know if you've seen it, Simon, um, from uh, Michaela Wong, uh, looking at uh, President Gaddafi uh, furious that this policy hasn't planned out as he wanted. It was all supposed to be part of cementing Rwanda's position on the global stage, and actually, you've got the the heir to the throne condemning the idea of uh, th this deal is appalling, just as Prince Charles touches down. Uh, as I said, I think, uh, you know, not that Charles, Prince Charles has commented in public at all, yeah. but I assume that his problem is with the, with the United Kingdom end of yeah. the policy rather than Rwanda. So I would not expect uh, the Prince of Wales to have a particular problem meeting the president of Rwanda. But yes, um, clearly the policy has not worked out in the initial stages as uh, President Kagame hoped. But I note that he's got 120 million British pounds out of it. So it's not been all bad for him. It's probably not worked out too bad at all for him. And what about Boris Johnson's role on the world stage? He was obviously Foreign Secretary when you, uh, you were running the, the Foreign Office. Does he know how to m sort of manoeuvre his way through a big gathering like this? Yes. Um, uh, Mr. Johnson is a, a very clubbable and very well-known personality. Uh, so Well-liked? Uh, for sure. For some. Not for all, but for some. Absolutely. And I think that he will find uh, Chogham uh, uh, one of the easier, more amiable <laughs> international meetings. Is that your sense as well, Henry? Um, where do you think Boris Johnson would, you know, the, every week is another exercise in trying to draw a line under what happened the week before. Where would Boris Johnson like to be by the time it's, um, it's wheels up and you're coming home from Rwanda? Well, of course, this is the first of a run of three consecutive international summits that Boris Johnson is taking part in. So actually, he's going to be out of the country for quite some time. Um, so he flies straight from Kigali to, uh, to Bavaria, where the G7 summit is taking place. And as 
uh, Lord Macdonald just said, I think that's going to be tougher for Boris Johnson. That is uh, going to be a bit more Ukraine focused. That's going to have him up with Schultz and Macron, people with whom uh, or people who's uh, perhaps uh, are a little more resistant to his club ability uh, than some of the Chogham leaders <laughs> might be. Um, should say, of course, Justin Trudeau, a fellow G7 leader, is going to be at Chogham. Um, but um, it's not going to be, I think some people in Downing Street were hoping it would be, but it's not going to be an opportunity for him to have his first meeting with Anthony Albanese, the new Australian Prime Minister, who is sending uh, his deputy. Um, so, you know, there's an interesting sort of um, issue there where, of course, Boris Johnson is trying to pivot outwards to the world, to the Commonwealth. AUKUS is obviously a very significant uh, trilateral pact um, but perhaps Australia and New Zealand, who are also sending their foreign minister, Jacinda Ardern's not going to be in Rwanda, you know, perhaps aren't quite as interested and a bit more interested in Asia than the UK would like them to be. Just finally, Simon, what's the worst thing that can go wrong? Reflecting on your times of organising summits and meetings and that sort of thing. <laughs> the worst thing I wouldn't want to speculate about that. <laughs> There's something that flashed across your mind there and you decided not to tell And decided about. to keep it to myself. <laughs> Correct. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcast from. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.